Wayfair 515, Albuquerque Center, Roger, climb and maintain 13000. Riding down a trail to Albuquerque, saddlebags all filled with beans and Welcome to the City on the Edge podcast with your hosts, Nora Hickey, Mike Smith, and Ty Bannerman. like Los Angeles to me. Yep, welcome back to City on the Edge. I'm your host, Ty Bannerman. It's July 27th of 2021, and for the past few months, there's been a lot of national and international attention paid to the Indian, by which I mean Native American, boarding schools. Especially after ground-penetrating radar led to the discovery of thousands of unmarked graves at these school sites, both in the U.S. and Canada, providing a horrific reminder of the atrocities perpetrated by these institutions. Here in New Mexico, there were several federally-run Indian boarding schools, and in Albuquerque, 120 Native children who died at the Albuquerque Indian School are buried at 4-H Park, where a verdant green lawn and playground give no indication of the interred bodies below. As part of my preparation for an episode of Let's Talk New Mexico, a show I produce on 89.9 KUNM, I spoke to Professor John Graham of Missouri State University. John wrote the book Education at the Edge of Empire, Negotiating Pueblo Identity in New Mexico's Indian Boarding Schools, which, as you might guess, is one of the authoritative sources of information on the boarding school experience here in New Mexico. I was really curious as to how New Mexico's boarding schools matched up to those in Canada and other parts of the U.S., and John was happy to oblige. Here's the full interview. Um, so you are the author of Education at the Edge of Empire. Are you from New Mexico? I'm not, actually. I'm, I'm originally from Texas and, and live in Missouri now. How did you get in, in, uh, interested in the, uh, the subject of the Indian schools in New Mexico specifically? Sure. Uh, so I was visiting some family friends who live near Albuquerque, and um, while I was in town, I, I went to the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center, Okay. Um, and I, I started, you know, looking around. It's a, it's a great, uh, great center, and saw pictures of the Santa Fe Indian School uh, mm-hmm. originally there. And um, I just read a book uh, on on the boarding schools, and I started thinking, huh, you know, I wonder if um, some of the sort of the, the local variations, the differences that the pueblos in New Mexico as a whole are facing during this time period. Uh, would would have affected um, the mission and purpose of these boarding schools that were established there. So I kind of started um, looking into that and found that yeah, um, you know, it's not that it's not that the schools established in New Mexico, at least at first, didn't have the same intentions mm-hmm. as the other schools. It's just that for a variety of factors, the pupils were able to exercise much more influence on how the schooling experience went. So it's not a matter of kinder or gentler schools. It's a matter of of, of a resilience and effective challenge on, on behalf of the pueblos. Right. So, can you kind of walk me through what those what those differences were? Like, how how did schools evolve in in other places versus here in New Mexico? <laughs> sure. So, so the goal is, it, it, you know, in, in a perfect world, uh, the form, the the creators of these boarding schools want to establish a school far away from indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. They want to keep the kids there for um, in the U.S. it's usually a minimum of five years before they can go home. And then they send them home 
uh, at this point, in their minds, ideally, completely de-Indianized and ready to uh, initiate their entire communities uh, into the larger American society. So really, I mean, right. these are child soldiers. This looks different than we might think um, in other contexts. Right. So, so, so that's sort of the dream, right? Um, it, yeah. it doesn't work for multiple reasons. Uh, it doesn't work, one, because the schools are actually established pretty close to the Pueblo communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even on foot, uh, you're at most a couple of days away from from Jemez or other um, you know more conservative, very sympathetic communities. If you if you want to run away, and at the same time, uh, parents from almost every community. Um, I said it's the Central Domingo, not Jemez. Sorry, I said the wrong sure. one. Um, but uh, parents can come from these communities to the schools. So you can check in on your students. Mm-hmm. You can see what's going on, so you don't have a free reign with the kids. Um, another issue facing the New Mexican boarding schools is that you have a heavy Catholic presence there in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, and the Catholic Church, um, while not being really any more sympathetic to Pueblo culture than the American government during this time period, uh, is very possessive of the Pueblos and their communities. Mm-hmm. Like these, are, these are our Indians. We've spent hundreds uh-huh. of years here, and you're not going to come in, damn it, and take our Indians, right? So, right. so they're actively working against uh, the, the boarding schools in some pretty crazy ways, like pretty pretty nuts. Um, and at the same time, of course, uh, St. Catherine's in Santa Fe manages to survive the, the overall cut um, to Catholic boarding schools. And so and so St. Catherine's is, is legitimate straight-up competition, right? So so now you, you have the Pueblos who can, to some extent, play these schools against each other, right? Uh, they may not be able to avoid going to a school, but you're like, uh, you know, at St. Catherine's, they, you know, get new shoes every year. Oh, oh okay, mm-hmm. we can we can totally, uh, you know, right? So, uh, so that helps as well. Um, the Pueblos are seen as different than other uh, Native American tribal nations uh, by, by many of the people on the ground there in Santa Fe in the schools. Um, you know, a lot of this is due to the writings of, of people like um, – I can't remember his name. Uh, let's see. Um, Newspaper guy goes out to San Francisco. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't. Well, I can think of his name. Um, that is really sad. Okay. Well, anyway, so as uh, you know, as, as gets romanticized, even in the popular press, there's this distinction between like these noble. Um, they're they're seen as democratic and republican, uh, which is weird, right? Pueblo. Okay. These yeah. civilized urban pueblos, and then these nasty horse thieves, Diné, and, and other groups, mm. right? So, so they're already seen as like they're 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 of course they're Indians, right? We got to help them, and they're not as good as us, but they're not like Indian Indians, right? So, right. Uh, and then another factor is the fact that pueblo citizenship isn't very clear. Um, with, with when Mexico um, has their their revolution and establishes their sort of liberal constitution, one of the things they do is they sort of erase indigeneity by making everyone citizens. So so Mexico declares the pueblos to be citizens of Mexico, okay? Mm-hmm. So when the U.S. Um, takes over that area from Mexico in, in the treaty that ends the war, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, right. uh, one, one of the stipulations is that Mexican citizens – uh, land rights will be protected, right, and that they will be allowed to, in time, um, become U.S. citizens if they choose to stay. Okay. Now, that doesn't really work out that way, right? But 
at least on paper, that's that's the situation. So now you have these pueblos. Uh, so are, uh, do we treat them legally like Native Americans, or do we treat them like Mexican citizens under the treaty? Right? Like, wh- wh- where do they fit into this system? I mean. All Indians at this point are, are considered wards of the state, but the Pueblos are this kind of weird gray area. It doesn't really get um, cleared up until 1913, the U.S. versus Sandoval. Uh, and by then, though, sort of these, these give and take, these negotiations that have been going on between the schools and communities, they are not and always sure they can force their will on, mm-hmm. uh, have kind of been put into place already. So even when Sandoval supposedly clears it up, at that point, I would argue that local custom and tradition has sort of made that a moot point. So there's like a unique legal status for the Pueblos that yeah, it causes here. kind of a cultural it? shift mm-hmm. or a view of, of their culture is different. Right. Yeah, and more than unique, I would say it's just it's unclear. I mean, ah, uh, okay. <laughs> like they're very clearly they're very clearly Native Americans in most people's minds, but they're not like the other kind of Native Americans. There's also this question of okay, if we have laws that are designed to force Indian children to go to these schools, do these schools apply to the pueblos, or are they protected mm-hmm. by the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty? It's not it's not clear. So like, how much force can you use, right? How much stick versus how much carrot do you have to figure out how to negotiate here? Right. Um, and so that, I think, gives the Pueblos a lot more room to negotiate in those crucial first decades, right, where precedent's mm-hmm. kind of being set that other tribes don't have access to. And that would have been like the 18, late 1800s. Right, so, right. Yeah. So basically, I think uh, U.S. Sandoval, I think, is 1913. You can fact check that. I think okay. it's 1913. So how did that impact the, how, the direction that the schools wound up taking here? Sure. So, so what happens is that um, a couple of really important things. First of all, despite the attempts of multiple superintendents to, to force their will on the Pueblos to fight this, the reality is that superintendent after superintendent realizes they, they have to have the Pueblos, mm-hmm. that they have to get these students into school. They are facing extraordinary um, budget crises, like literally all the time. There's just never enough money. And the money that you do get is based on per student. So you've got to fill the schools. Right. You just have to. And, and you also don't have a lot of money for, like, transporting students in. So you're going to have to recruit in the Pueblos. Uh, however, the Pueblos, because of that unclear legal status, because of the influence of Catholicism, they have the ability to negotiate in ways mm-hmm. that um, are surprising. So I haven't studied literally every school's records, but my understanding right. is that the, the is that Albuquerque and Santa Fe are, if not the first, one of the first schools to actually let students go home during the summer if they're Pueblo. Uh, if okay. they're Pueblo. And so already them, that taking the students away for a minimum of five years, that, that starts breaking down. Exactly. It gets blown up real fast. There's a long-standing tradition that develops early that when parents come to the school to visit their students, that the school will pay for the feed for their horses. So now you're actually not only not keeping parents away, you're actually enabling poor parents mm-hmm. <laughs> to visit their students. Um, so, so those kind of things develop. You have the fact that even though the, these schools are run by Protestant superintendents, uh, if, if they're religious at all, mm-hmm. and, and many of them actually hate the Catholics, they realize we have to have the Catholics help. Right. Like we have to we have to play nice. And so from very early on you have 
um, local Catholics recruited for the school's uh, for school employees. Very, very early on, you have Catholic priests and nuns coming to campus to provide religious instruction so that so the Pueblos actually aren't being exposed to Protestant Christianity. They're being taught as Catholics. And, and this is important because I mean, the Pueblos at this point have literally hundreds of years of experience of learning how to use Catholicism to actually right. not only protect but preserve their culture, right? So this is, this is a whole level of assimilation that really never takes place for the Pueblos. They are already, they've already encountered Catholicism in the colonial system. They know how to train their kids to face it, how to use it. And so that, the Protestantism that is just one of the blunt tools of the boarding schools really doesn't do much for them. Now, it's interesting because, you know, what we're seeing in Canada right now with the discovery of these mass graves and a lot of attention being paid to, to like, the different atrocities that occurred at their schools, many of those schools were, were Catholic-run. Yeah. So why did that play out differently here than, than uh, there? Um, well, one of the main reasons is that, is that there's, not, um, there's not competition between federal and religious schools in, in mm-hmm. Canada. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it's the 60s. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure it's the mm-hmm. 60s when the Canadian government finally directly starts taking over schools. Mm-hmm. So, so basically Canada actually consciously looks at the U.S. system as it's in place in the 1860s and 70s, which at that point we are still largely, um, almost entirely actually just funding religious schools to do the work for us. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we could use that model. And that model survives in Canada well into the 20th century, whereas on the U.S. side of things, that model actually doesn't survive uh, even the 1870s. By the 1870s, mm. the federal government is like, look, we're uh, quite frankly, we're tired of the bitching between religious groups. We're tired of all these things. We're just, we're just going to do it ourselves. And so the federal uh-huh. government actually establishes its own system of schools beginning in the late 1800s so that the religious, religious institutions and government institutions are actually in competition in the U.S., um, whereas that's not happening in Canada for the most part. I, again, my Canada knowledge is not as sure. but I really think it's not like the 1960s or 70s and government Canada says, look, we're just taking it from here. <laughs> right. Now, as you mentioned, you mentioned the uh, Indian Pueblo Cultural Center here mm-hmm. and then the Santa Fe Indian School as well. Both of these are um, sites of the former Indian schools that are now owned by the 19 Pueblos of New Mexico. Yes. Is this kind of repurposing of the Indian school sites by Native American communities, is this something that you typically see in other states, or, or is this unusual? Uh, it definitely has happened in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Haskell, um, Haskell is an Indian college now that actually was a, was a boarding school. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. So it's not, it's not a unique story. It, right. it might be perhaps unusual, but most of the boarding schools that survive, say, the Great Depression, mm-hmm. uh, now are either repurposed and run by the tribes themselves, or they're at least run in much closer cooperation between the BIA and, and the tribes. So to me, it's a really cool end of the story, right? You have these schools right. established. Basically, I mean, you can talk about good intentions all you want, but they're genocidal institutions established mm-hmm. in the backyard of the Pueblos. And a right. hundred years later, uh, the Pueblos are actually running the thing for the purpose of educating their own children on their own terms and preserving their culture. It's kind of like a cool Hollywood script, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's uh, if we can go back to that term, 
uh, genocidal. I think, you know, maybe a lot of people, when they hear that, they think of literal death, but you're using it to mean more like a cultural death. Is that is that right? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the truth is that within the field, um, scholars kind of debate whether whether genocide or, or cultural genocide, right, is the better term. Um, there's, a, there's some reasons that I prefer uh, genocide, and the, one of the reasons I prefer genocide is actually, uh, according to the UN's definition of genocide, the schools do meet that definition on, on mm. multiple levels. It's not so yeah, I mean, genocide can just mean body count, right? Right. But it doesn't have to. It, it, it's intentionally destroying a people group, and and, and this is the point right. of the schools, right? Pratt's famous saying is "Kill the Indian, save the man." It's it's benevolent right. genocide, whatever that means, right? Right. Um, and I think I think too. I, well, I understand the arguments for using cultural genocide, and I get that. I think there's a better argument to say, look, if you are destroying the ability or attempting to destroy the ability of the people group to reproduce themselves as that distinct people group, even if their bodies survive, then why would we make a distinction? Right. I mean, right. And I, again, there, there's debate. I'm not, that's not a foregone conclusion. That's kind of mm -hmm. my view on why the term makes sense. And certainly at the beginning, that was absolutely the intention of these institutions. Yeah, absolutely. That evolved. So, um, Along those lines, uh, recently here in Albuquerque, uh, there was a there's a, a grave site from the Albuquerque Indian School that was in the news. Um, the graves are unmarked, except for a plaque that was stolen at some point. And I wonder, did your research uncover any information on this particular grave site? Is this the uh, kind of a similar situation as to what what the Canadians are discovering? Sure. Uh, it's, it's probably a similar situation. The frustrating thing about researching Albuquerque Indian School is that fires destroyed most of the early records in 1910. Mm -hmm. And then there were quite a few fires set after the property was abandoned uh, wow. in the 1980s. And so um, there's just a lot missing there. It certainly wouldn't be, un it, there's nothing unusual about finding a, a graveyard uh, near a boarding school. Um, it, it, you know, the, there are several reasons they could be there. Um, you know, so superintendent certainly sent bodies home. You may have just had a recalcitrant superintendent who was just kind of a douche. It happens. Um, they may have been um, they may have been buried there during like the influenza uh, epidemic or other things mm -hmm. which they were worried about sending the bodies back home. I mean, they have at this point at least sort of primordial, <laughs> you know, bacteriology and virology like we do today. Um, so yeah, it, it's not it. It doesn't surprise me there's a grave there. And as far as the origins of the, those particular graves, I, it would probably be pretty hard um, to uncover most of them just because the records just aren't there anymore. So we really, we literally don't have access to the stories of the, the people who are who are buried there, much less. Um, um, you know, not, not to my knowledge. Um, I've looked at pretty much everything there is. It, Denver is, is National Archives that hold this stuff. And... Um, you know, I, I did quite research on, on health and death at the schools, and I, you know, I didn't, you could anecdotally find a name here or there of a student who passed away, or maybe they write a letter home to the parents. Um, so I mean, we could get, we could get a handful of names of students mm -hmm. who died there, but as far as attaching them to any particular gravesite, I mean, I, I don't know how to do it. There may be local records in New Mexico that were better kept, but that's another problem, too, is that, um, is that for the, extraordinary machinery of bureaucracy involved in this school system. Right. They keep really shitty records. 
<laughs> of their students, especially the ones, which wouldn't be the case here, but especially the ones that leave school. They're like, all right, well, we assume they're doing good. Talk to you guys later. It's, it's just, it's weird. It's really weird. Right, right. Um, one thing that I've uh, kind of encountered in, in uh, during research for this story is that, you know, there are people who, who attended the school or their, their parents attended the school and they're like, well, actually it, it, um, it was helpful for our family. We were able to, uh, you know, acquire skills that we wouldn't otherwise. Um, how, how should we talk about the, the Indian schools here in, in New Mexico, given, given all that we've just discussed, ranging from their original intention of assimilation to, to that kind of experience? Sure. So I think, I think we can talk about what, what, what would have happened if the schools had been successful. Mm-hmm. We can then talk about how and why they weren't able to be successful, giving the Pueblos credit for that. Right. Then I think we can look at actual impact, right? It, um, and, and the reality is that, I mean, you don't want to call it quantify trauma or things like that, but it does seem like Santa Fe and Albuquerque produce more alums um, who had positive experiences, or at least are willing to share them, um, than other schools. And, and now, now, part of this too is that the people that we have access to now, right, either living or, or recently deceased, they're they're going to the schools um, post-1928 for the most part. And, and right. the reason that matters is that in 1928, the government releases something called the Merriam Report, named after uh, Lewis Merriam. And the Merriam Report is basically just a huge takedown of all the government is doing wrong. Um, when it comes to Native Americans. And a big part of that is the boarding schools. Like, the boarding schools aren't working. This is ridiculous. This is a really, really stupid idea. I mean, it's just it's a brutal takedown. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so in light of this, um, you've had sort of a community of, of people that we, can, we consider more cultural relativists, sort of our term today. I mean, they're centric, but, but they, they see inherent value at least, right, mm-hmm. in the American culture. And they've been activists for a while, and the Marion Report kind of gives them the fuel they need um, to start really pushing for reform of these schools. In fact, one of these, the major activists who's active in New Mexico before the Marion Report comes out is John Collier. And John Collier actually ends up becoming the Commissioner of Indian Affairs under uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm. Um, he is the one responsible for the Indian Reorganization Act in which the government begins to return to treaty, mm-hmm. uh, treaty tribal uh, government-to-government relationships and, and Collier's a complicated figure. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of things going on. They're a little um, not ideal. Um, right. But, but yeah, so, so from like the 1930s on, um, it is a different story. It, 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 I would say that the assimilationist bent stays, uh, mm-hmm. especially with World War II, and then you have the Cold War where anybody that's different is suspicious, right? Um, but it is a different story post-1928. So if you look at all the literature, and including my book, mm-hmm. a lot of the stories either go up to 1928 or take the story post-1928, right? So it really is right. a really different situation. So, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so, that, so that's worth, so it is worth, worth pointing out that the school's experiences change over time and trying to understand what causes those changes and what that ha- effect that has on the students who are actually there okay. at, at, at specific time periods. Right. Thank you for tuning into another episode of City on the Edge. If you enjoyed our show, tell your friends, like and share our stuff on social media, and check out our YouTube channel by searching for City on the Edge Albuquerque. 
This episode has been made possible by our supporters on Patreon, aka the coolest people on the planet. To join them in their support of our show and get exclusive access to content, t-shirts, and swag, go to patreon.com slash cityontheedge and sign up for one of the tiers starting as low as $1 a month. This has been a City on the Edge production. Yeah.